Uh, we're going to continue in our series, Profiles of Faith, Lessons from the Ancients of Hebrews 11. So you can open up to Hebrews 11, uh, and you can also open up to 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we're going to spend most of our study this morning in the scriptures. Um, and we're going to look at the prophets, as is mentioned in Hebrews 11.32, and specifically, we're going to look at Elijah as our example. But before I do that, I want to spend a good deal of time this morning framing the way we're going to learn about faith, and specifically, uh, some time to uh, ask some questions around uh, where is it that we are putting our faith. So um, I want you to just bear with me for a bit here because this is all going somewhere, I promise you. Okay? So uh, I just want to bring you in on some of my thoughts here and, and this is going to get us to a, a good discussion, I think, on faith this morning. Um, in the last few weeks, the New York Times has published a series of articles revolving around the Me Too movement, which is a, a movement that has been in inviting people who have been victims of sexual abuse and sexual harassment to not have shame and, and not feel like they, uh, they did something wrong and be able to deal with uh, the pain uh, and, and even bring uh, you know, uh, criminal action against the people who uh, propagated these acts. And so the New York Times has been doing uh, tons of different articles and stories on this whole thing. Some of the uh, most prominent ones recently that I've noticed uh, you may have heard of um, involves Willow Creek Community Church. Uh, it is a massive evangelical church of probably around 25,000 people or more outside of Chicago. Uh, and Bill Hybels, its founding pastor, has begun to admit that maybe he made mistakes in how he had relationships with some of his female staff, um, his female assistants, uh, and, and it's creating a little bit of turmoil in the evangelical world. Similarly, there's yet another story out in the last week related to more uh, issues with the Catholic Church, new allegations of sexual harassment and sexual abuse, and also, interestingly, coming out of New York University, NYU, and this one's a little bit different uh, related culturally to the rest of them. This one is allegations of a male student accusing a female professor um, of, of misconduct. And so this was interesting to me as I was reading this story. Uh, it told how her colleagues and peers in the academic community around the world were uh, coming to her defense uh, and, and were uh, all kind of signed their names to a letter. And a lot of the language the article was talking about is very similar to how many men in Hollywood and business and in churches, uh, it's very similar language to how they are defending themselves in the light of this crisis. Very similar sorts of arguments are being made to come to her defense, even to the point that her reputation should allow her to be treated differently. So the challenge that the article is bringing up here is saying that, hold on, now that this is getting into a corner of feminist academia, and some of the same people who celebrated and pushed forward the Me Too movement in the first place are finding themselves caught in a really tricky spot when one of their own is now being accused. 
And so we run into a really, really complicated situation the article talks about where it feels like there is a little bit of a double standard and a double set of values around this community. And, and I read this, and, and I want uh, you to hear me right now. This is not to discredit the Me Too movement that I am bringing this up. I think it's massively important for many people to be able to be emboldened, especially women, to be emboldened to deal with these atrocities that have happened to them. But as I was reading this, this is what uh, I wrote kind of just in my reflection. It reminds us that no institution is infallible. We've seen this now in Hollywood. We've seen it in church and feminist academia. The common denominator here is human beings. We are broken. And I think it is an appropriate time for self-reflection instead of blaming. It reminds us that we are all capable of committing abuse or protecting abusers. And we must find a better way to live. We absolutely must find a better way to live. I don't know about you, but I often see movements like this or different institutions grow and they become respected and they're doing some real good in the world. And it feels like the next thing I know, there is a New York Times article exposing all the secrets of their leaders behind closed doors and they're all going to jail. Right? Every day you turn on the news and there's some new horrible scandal. And I find myself getting incredibly disappointed as celebrities and people of, of repute that um, perhaps I would assume never would be caught up in allegations like this, and then we're faced with the cold, hard reality that they too are broken. And when I find myself getting disappointed like this, I realize that I am putting hope, I am putting my faith if you will, in institutions or people that I am holding up to sort of be exemplars that we can all aspire to. There's something in me that wants them to be that good so maybe I can live this better life that they seem to have stumbled upon. Are you with me? But we know all too well at this point that every single human kingdom comes crashing down. Everything. Every one of them. And this is really well documented in history. I'm going to get really nerd on you here a little this morning, so I need you to stick with me because it's really important. Um, Sir Thomas More, he's a noted 16th century philosopher uh, from England, and he understood this whole concept of, you know, we can't create any kind of institution that is going to stand the test of time. It's all built on broken humans. And he wrote about this in a book that had in its title a word you've perhaps heard of called utopia. And he wrote about this idea of utopia as this perfect place where nothing goes wrong. Everyone has everything they need. They have the perfect form of government. Everything's working out just as it should. But Thomas More uh, unpacks the, the, the story of this perfect place, and it starts to get kind of weird because something happens, and then people are kind of unhappy, and then the state has to like clamp down control because no one's happy, and we need them to be happy. So we start controlling them, and it gets really weird really fast. And the clue is actually in the name Utopia, because this is, again, where my nerd's showing, so you just have to bear with me here. Um, he, he, it's a play on words in Latin, so EU, 
If you spell uh, utopia, E-U-T-O-P-I-A, utopia, it means happy place. But if you spell it with the letter utopia in Latin, it means no place. And what he's trying to tell us is, this is not something we can chase and find. We, he has his English humor kind of at its best here. And, and he's trying to tell us, and many other authors have tried to tell us. There was one journalist I read that, uh, that said, Utopia is only accessed across a sea of blood, but you never get there. And it's this idea that there is something out there that we think is better and could be a better way of living, but we never get there. And it's so pervasive in our thinking in Western society. Think about this for a second. When, you're dealing, when we're dealing with conflict in the world, maybe especially during an election season, you hear people tend to say things like, if we could all just get along or if we could all just kind of let everyone do what they're doing or respect everyone's opinions or tolerate where everyone's coming from, and they don't ever really finish the thought, but what they are alluding to, either consciously or subconsciously, is this idea that we can prescribe a path to a better existence, a better way of living. Are you following me? Okay, good. I'm getting worried. Just, you can, like, respond, nod, do something. Shake your head, scream, I don't know. Um, so, so we're kind of, we realize that this is completely consumed in the way we all think about it. We have this idea of a better life, but in, in the midst of seeking this better life, there is a growing sense in culture that we are doomed and things are just never going to work out well. This realization that this utopian way of living, this better way of life is just out of our reach is becoming more and more real. And I think that possibly we are starting to reach our limit with how much of the failure and disappointment we can take. And I think what we are experiencing is cultural burnout. We are just so tired and disillusioned of the same hope and disappointment cycle over and over again, of putting our faith and trust in something and see it come crashing down. So then we're left with this question, should we even bother? Does this matter for anything? Why am I bothering looking forward to this better future? In fact, why even do I have this idea that a better future is the way things are supposed to be? Well, I'm glad you asked that last question because I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, in order for us to really understand the story of Elijah and the context and the thinking of the writer of the book of Hebrews, we need to do a quick history lesson here. It's going to help us shape our understanding of where this thinking of a better future came from in the first place, and perhaps it's going to shed some light on what, what I would like to suggest is that looking for a better future is worth it, and that in following the way of Jesus, we find that better way to live. Uh, okay, did I lose anyone? Good, you're shaking your head. This is, you're shaking your head no, which is what I want to hear right now. Okay, so here's the quick history lesson. Thomas Cahill wrote a book called The Gifts of the Jews. Absolutely fascinating book. And in it, he outlines how this worldview of looking for a better future actually is Jewish in origin. And he talks about the stark contrast between how the Jewish pe uh, people viewed the world 
and going back to ancient times and how the rest of ancient societies functioned and what their worldviews are. And the Jewish worldview eventually gave birth to the Christian worldview, which eventually influenced all of the Western world, which creates, hence, the world that you and I live in, the way you and I think, and this idea that there is a better future. So he writes that in Genesis, Abram came out of Ur. Ur is this uh, historical city. It's a real place in modern-day Iraq. They, they go through the, the archaeological site. It's a real place. They find temples. They kind of got a sense of the layout of the city. It was the most advanced, comfortable place they had. It was a technological marvel of the ancient world. Um, and in this society, they carried this thing called a cyclical worldview. And what a cyclical worldview is is it is just a pattern of no past, there's no future, there's just a sense of repeating the circle. So we go through life, reproduction, death, rebirth. And it was just kind of tied to their agricultural system. This seed must die so new life comes forth. And they just followed this pattern. And this pattern gave way to uh, a behavior and a way of living that was in line with that worldview. Because if everything's cyclical, no life really matters. Therefore, you see this come out in stories like Gilgamesh and different things like that. Um, you see how they value very highly male friendships, but females, women, and children are really only as much value as they can contribute to continuing the cycle to appeasing the gods, to make sure that this way of life keeps going. Uh, and it reaches its zenith in its most grotesque form through these horrible uh, ritual sacrifices that they would perform on children in Ur. And this was the world in which this new identity, this new way of looking at the world, a better future began to emerge. That it's possible to not be stuck in this cycle. So it is in this place that a businessman is approached by God and he says, Abram, there's a better way. I want you to be the one that I build this better way through. And your family. And so Cahill goes on in his book to describe how God slowly unpacks generation to generation how not only is there a promised better life, but there's a promised better land. And not only that, but there is a promised Messiah who's going to lead us into the way that is better to live. And that through him, he will be able to lead God's people into this better way of life. So this is the context through which um, this, the story of Elijah that we're going to read happens. It's in this cyclical worldview. It is in this frame of mind that the writer of Hebrews, even in ancient Roman times, they had this cyclical worldview. And they're trying to write in a way that competes against this crazy cultural uh, stress that they all live under. And so right from the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, the, he begins to write that Jesus is the superior way. That's what he begins to write out. It's way better than the sacrificial systems. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He is the fulfillment of every promise. That better way of life that we've been talking about since Abraham, this is the better way. It's found in Jesus. And he comes to chapter 11 and he begins imploring these believers that he's writing to to have faith in the way of Jesus that they know that there's challenges ahead. 
He's reminding them of all of these stories. Look at these people who kept the faith. You too can keep the faith. And this is incredibly important for us here today as people of faith in 2018. Okay? Because we need the same message. We have an idea in our minds of a better future, right? Because it exists in our culture. However, it has lost its moorings in the Christ who makes the better future possible. As one pastor put it, we want the kingdom without the king. We want all the benefits of a better future. But we do not want to submit to the Christ who makes a better future possible. And when that happens, we are left with a society that is doing what we see now. It, it will continue to search for a better way of life. It will continue to try and bring about a better future, only to crash and burn miserably and leave us disappointed. And when that happens, we become incredibly burned out and we become incredibly disillusioned to the possibility of a better life. And you can always tell when you've misplaced your faith in the wrong thing because there is an incredible amount of disillusionment and burnout. People say all the time, I I'm just done with church. I'm burned out. I'm burned out. I'm, I'm done. I'm so burnt by people. I can't do it anymore. I can't do this anymore. And hear me, there are really, really painful stories that are attached to so many of those statements. People have had a really, really crappy time in church. And they have been discipled in a way of life that has taught them to put their faith in leaders, to put their faith in institutions that ultimately were never meant to be the objects of that kind of trust. And when you put your faith in people like that, it will only lead to burnout. It will only lead to eventual disillusionment. So if we are going to continue on this quest to find a better way of life, we need to refine how our faith works, where we are placing our faith, where it is pointed at. And I think that the story of Elijah, the great prophet, in 1 Kings 19 is a great starting point for this search. So we read in uh, Hebrews 11.32, it says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And we're going to focus on the prophets this morning. The prophets mean so many people, but probably one of the most significant prophetic figures in Scripture is absolutely Elijah. Rivaled possibly in the Old Testament only by Moses. He is so important to the Old Testament tradition, so important even nowadays to the Jewish tradition, that if we were to go over to Spring Valley or New Square and we were invited to have Passover with an Orthodox Jewish family, we would see an empty place set at the table for Elijah. That is how important Elijah is. There's a whole theology about Elijah coming to bring in the Messiah. We don't have time to get into that, but that's why they set the place at the table. Um, he, so he's clearly a very uh, important per, uh, figure for them. So I believe if we look at the story of Elijah, it will give us a good sense of why the faith of the prophets was so important. And I believe if we read this story here in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, it is going to help us understand and fine-tune where we are placing our faith and pointing our faith. And then I want to offer just four quick 
questions as a way of reflection on the, on the text and on the passage that I believe are just going to help us recalibrate where we're putting our faith. So let's read this text, uh, 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he, he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. At once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, which Elijah, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. That's modern-day Syria. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come to you. Go back, Elijah replied. 
what have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. That's a really interesting story. Really interesting story. So, right before this, Elijah had just had his greatest victory ever. Ever. This is like the peak of his faith story. It's a story you probably know. Uh, There were 450 priests of Baal, and Baal was the local god who was part of this whole cyclical worldview that they offered sacrifices to locally there, and the Israel, um, the people of Israel had totally left God, and they were falling back into this pattern of Baal worship. And so Elijah goes, and he's going up against a challenge, these 450 priests of Baal, and he's like, we're going to have a a contest here, and we're going to have sacrifices. You make one for your God, I'll make one to my God, and whichever one fire falls on from heaven, we'll know is the real God. And as we know from the story, God brought fire down but nothing happened for the priests of Baal. And so it shows and proved that God was the one with the power. God was the one with the authority, not Baal, over that land. And all of the 450 priests of Baal were eliminated, and Elijah feels like this is going to be like a sea change in the culture of Israel. This is a big moment for him. And he prays, and God sends rain on the land for, uh, after three years of famine and no rain. And that's really significant because Baal was actually the storm and the sky god, which means he had control over the weather and sending rain or not sending rain. So the fact that Elijah praying to his god had stopped the rain for three years and there's nothing that Baal could do about it and then started the rain at God's command and nothing Baal could do about it, it just adds insult to injury after this epic showdown with the priests of Baal. And so Elijah's stock right now and his faith cannot get any higher. Not only is he like, we won this contest, God. I'm God's prophet, and this is amazing. Not only that, he's like, let's have rain now after three years of no rain. He's just kicking butt right now. And he's like, life is good. It is huge. His ministry has never been better. And then all of a sudden we read that the Queen Jezebel finds out what happened. She is enraged and furious, and she sends messengers. Basically, she puts a hit out on Elijah. And we read 1 Kings uh, 19, verse 3, and it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And this initiates the darkest chapter of Elijah's life. He becomes depressed. He becomes suicidal. He has lost everything. He has lost his faith. He's like, there's no coming back from this. And we're reading this text, and we go, wait, what? This guy just totally changed everything You ever had those moments where you're like, my faith cannot get any higher right now. I so trust God. And then one little thing happens, and we're like, God, everything's over. I'm doomed. This is is what Elijah's experiencing right now. It is intense grief, exhaustion spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. He is done. What happened? What happened? What happens to us in those moments? This is where I want us to begin to reflect on where are we putting our faith? 
And what I'd like to suggest is that there was something that had changed in Elijah's perspective from the time he called the rain down to the time he hears that there has been a hit put out on him. And the clue that we have is in the original Hebrew with this phrase that we get translated as Elijah was afraid, and it actually means Elijah saw. It's this word ra'ah, and it means that he saw that there was a threat on his life. He perceived, he was paying attention to all of the negative stuff. He was paying attention to, not God, he had his eyes fixed upon the circumstances, the death, all of the evil and harm that could potentially come to him. So this leads us to our first question. When we feel like our faith is becoming disillusioned, when we are burned out and just done, the first question we must ask ourselves is, who am I looking at? Who am I looking at? When Elijah's faith is resting in God, he is so confident. And then when he, what I believe he does here is he believes that there is going to be a complete change in the institution of the monarchy. And there's going to be a change in the Baal worship and this worldview that Israel had shifted over to. And it doesn't happen. And I think what happened is, is he misplaced his faith in seeing an institution bring about change that only God could bring. And this is so critical for us in light of everything we've been talking about this morning. If we are going to have a robust, refined faith that can exist in today's modern world, we have to ask ourselves, who am I looking at? Who am I looking at? Who am I looking to? Who is securing my faith? Are my eyes fixed on people on leaders, church leaders, an institution, a political party, a political system? Is it fixed on money, my dreams, my career potential? Is my faith fixed on my spouse and my friends and my kids and their future? And this is not to say that we're not going to have trust broken sometimes with people and we become disappointed. Absolutely. But what I'm talking about here is a type of disappointment where we have put so much faith and trust in someone that when it doesn't work, we literally can't function. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about. It is the faith that says we're doomed. When we begin to place it anywhere other than God, we begin to fall into this disillusion. And Elijah looks one other place too. He says to God, I'm no better than my ancestors. And we begin to compare ourselves perhaps to leaders or great people of faith uh, who've come before us, maybe people from the Bible, um, people who are you know, leading us or people that we see from afar that we admire that are church leaders or otherwise. And we're like, I can't have faith like them. I, 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 I failed. I, I can't do this. We ever do that? We, we look and, and we feel like, oh man, I, I, I just can't be those people. Comparison will kill, kill, kill your faith. Who are we looking at? The more we look to our circumstances or the challenges, the more disillusioned and worn down we're going to get. We must, as the, Hebrew, uh, the, as the author of Hebrews said, we must look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. No institution, no hope in our dreams, career possibilities, whatever it might be, can satisfy it. We must look to him. So the first question that we have to ask in, this, in the burnout and disillusionment of faith is, what am I looking at? 
Second, what am I remembering? Elijah gets this moment of clarity that I think is so critical for us. We are not super great in Protestant church and evangelical church at remembrance. We don't do a lot of symbolism. Uh, so this is, this is really something that's important for us to get. Elijah gets this moment of clarity, and he's like, I've got to go to Mount Horeb. So Mount Horeb goes by another name that you might be familiar with, Mount Sinai. And it is the place where Moses received the law. It's the place where Israel became a nation. It's the reminder of all of this stuff that God has done before. And Elijah says to himself, thinks to himself, perhaps if I enter into this great remembering of the story of God, if I remember everything he's done for me, for my people, perhaps my faith will become reinvigorated. And this is really interesting for us. Uh, I was thinking as I was preparing this, how often do I take time to remember why I follow Jesus? We're always like, I'm following him, I'm going to be obedient, I'm going to do this. How many times do we just stop and go, why am I doing this? And begin to remember our past, remember who we were before we met Jesus. Begin to remember the work of change he's brought in our life. This is why we come to the table every week. We're told to do this in remembrance of him. And when we come, we remember the work of Jesus on the cross, we remember his great power over death, and we remember for us personally how he's changed us, and we go, oh yeah, I remember. And when we remember, it begins to fuel our faith. In remembering, we bring the testimony of our past to refine the faith of our future. He can't look forward without looking back at what he's already done. So what am I remembering? When you're worn out, when you're just done, ask yourself, what am I remembering? Third, how am I thinking? Our thought life is incredibly important to refining our thinking. Elijah here is, uh, he's, starts this conversation with God. This is in verses like 13 to 18. He starts this conversation with God where he's like, I have done all of these things for you. I've done all these things for you. I did the things. I've been zealous is the word he used. He's like, I did more than anyone else and things are still getting worse and I'm the only one left. Isolating does that statement sound. I'm the only one left. I'm doing this all on my own. No one else cares. Does that resonate with anyone? Yeah, this is so real. I, I love this story because we're not hidden from Elijah's process of awakening his faith again. I love how honest this story is. He's asking real things of God. He's saying, I thought this was supposed to be a better future. I thought things were supposed to get better. And now I've done everything you wanted me to do. And now I've got death threats. There's nothing going on. What's going on here, God? And in a moment, perhaps, of a victim mentality, of entitlement, we ask God, what is in it for me to keep going? We begin to become self-focused because our thinking has been skewed. Here's the thing about a, a victim mentality. If, if you have a victim mentality, what that means is uh, not that something has happened to you, but that there is no possible way for you to do anything about it. So when you take on a victim mentality, what you are saying is, 
Not only did this happen to me, it is continuing, these people or these forces are causing this to happen to me. And as a victim, I am disempowering myself and I am saying there's nothing I can do about it. I am all on my own. It's just getting worse. There's nothing I can do. There is nothing I can do. That is the victim mentality. And it rails against the very fabric of faith. You cannot both have a victim mindset and be a person of faith. It's literally impossible. Because you have disempowered yourself to believe that something can change. Similarly, entitlement does the same thing. I want what I want, when I want it, because I checked the boxes and did my things, God. So give me the outcome that I was supposed to get or that I thought I was supposed to get. That's the entitlement thing. If you play the victim card, the ch when the challenge, challenge comes your way, you will not be able to inherit the deep faith that lies on the other side of the challenge. Similarly, if you play the entitlement card, you will not be able to move past that moment of challenge and receive what is actually your inheritance. Our thinking has to line up with the way God thinks about us, thinks about faith. Uh, I love what Rob Reamer says. Um, when you're facing adversity, don't ask God why. Ask him how. And the question is, you're, you're asking God, is God, how do you want to redeem this? How do you want to use me in the midst of this challenge? And it begins to point us with a view towards faith that something is possible, something can change. So I ask you again this morning, how are you thinking? How are you thinking? You cannot walk in faith if your thinking is skewed in this way. So Elijah had to get that turned around. Finally, uh, who am I with? Who am I with? So these first three questions are very, very important. But it is absolutely impossible for you to plumb the depths of all that these questions could reveal to you if you do not answer the fourth question, which is, who am I with? Who am I with? Perhaps you could say it another way, who am I doing life with? So Elijah gets refreshed. He encounters the Lord. He gets some perspective. He's thinking the way God thinks now. And then Elijah's reminded that there's 7,000 that God, it says God has set aside 7,000. He said, you're not alone. 7,000 who aren't following Baal. And they use this weird phrase, they haven't bowed to him or kissed him. It's just part of the way they did the ritual stuff. I know it sounds weird to us, but that's part of the practice of worship and reverence. And he's, God's saying, hey, you're not in this alone. Where'd you get this idea that it's all on you? Where did you get this idea? We see actually in chapter 20, there's like a pause in Elijah's story, and there's another prophet who we don't know his name, has this whole thing with all these kings and does all this great stuff for God. So it's just showing, it's just like another little story. It says, meanwhile, and then it starts this whole story. So God's point here is, you're not the only one that I have doing stuff. Why do you think you're doing this on your own? And furthermore, not only does Elijah begin to believe that he's, it's not all on his shoulders, he hears, hey, I want you to go get this guy, Elisha, and you're going to train him up. He's going to be the one to take over for you prophetically in the future. And so now Elisha doesn't just have this 
encouragement that there are many others who are pointing towards the same better future of faith that God has set out. He also sees, hey, there's going to be someone that I'm actually with, that I get to believe this stuff with. Friends, we do not practice our faith in a vacuum. It is impossible for you to do this challenge of faith on your own. If you are going to see your faith refined and grow and become more robust in this day and age, you must ask the question, who am I with? Who am I with? Andrew Constantino and I, we've, we've had this conversation back and forth uh, several times. We'll talk about how sometimes we're going to like hang out, but like leading up to it, we just like don't feel like hanging out. And like, we're both kind of like, I just want to stay home. I'm tired. I had a long day. Like, is this, you know, and, and we kind of like go through that. Like, is this worth it? Really? Like, am I really going to feel better about this? Y'all have that? Like you, you go to work and you come home and you're like, I'm, no, no people. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. But every time we get together, introverts, I bless you to be introverted, but you've got to lean into this too. Every time we get together, we are encouraged, right? So much faith is stirred up. We're getting excited about God and his story and what he's doing again. And we remember, oh yeah, because it's not just about me looking to God and trusting him and getting my thinking on. I've got to do it with people. The writer of Hebrews even points this out to us. He says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And I used to read this, and I felt like this was a bit of legalism or religiosity trying to get my butt in the seat at church every week so I could check, check my church box. I went to church. Now I view it as this beautiful pathway to faith in the midst of a deluded age. I literally cannot survive without this gathering. I literally cannot survive on this journey of faith if I'm not meeting with others, river groups, one-on-one, -on -one, talking about real issues of faith, asking these hard questions, being honest enough to say, yeah, I feel totally entitled and have a victim mentality right now, and I want to stay there. We have loving friends and community that encourage us. Say, okay, okay, well, stop that. Let's, let's what's going on here? Right? And they help us process these things. Statistics say the average Christian attends church twice a month. No wonder we have a faith crisis. And this is not illegal. I better see you here next Sunday. I hope you're here next Sunday. But I'm saying, seriously, this is where the issue of burnout and disillusionment happens. It is together that we are able to sustain this life we're called to live. We must find a better way. We must find a better way. So I just want to ask these questions again in closing. Who am I looking at? Who are you looking at? When you find yourself disillusioned in faith, when you find yourself just burnt out and done, who are you looking at? What are you remembering? God's story and his work that he's done? How am I thinking? Am I stuck in this victim mentality? I might be. Blaming everyone else for something that God wants me to partake in change for? And finally, who am I with? Who am I inviting into this, this journey and the struggles that I have? These are absolutely critical questions for you. You have to answer them. You must answer them if you are going to refine your faith in this modern age.
Questions will always move you out of your burnout and disillusionment as long as you are honest and you approach them with humility. So it's time to put our faith back where it belongs, submitting it to the king who can bring a kingdom, a kingdom that we all desire. Let's stand together.